0: Janet uh, Sanders.
1: Good afternoon. Uh, so this is um, seventh or eighth year I've been doing this uh, BLS uh, year in review for the BBA, but this year is a little different, um, and it's because um, um, of what's been happening in the last few months. So I thought I'd spend uh, the, the, my introduction here to the program and really talking about how the pandemic has impacted the court system generally, and more specifically, uh, BLS. And before we talk, turn things over to uh, Judge Salinger and Judge Green, who have been the two judges uh, actually sitting in the two BLS sessions um, uh, this last uh, term. Yeah, um, I think it's fair to say that the pandemic really struck Boston much like a tsunami. Um, it was sudden, uh, and it was with an impact that was, in a lot of different ways, uh, devastating. Um, you know, when I had my last day at work, Friday, March thirteenth. Um, I had no idea that I wouldn't be really returning to work for almost three months, and that I, when I did, it would be under such uh, different uh, circumstances. Uh, you know, in hindsight, um, I think the fact that the impact, the, the pandemic had the impact it did, uh, really comes as no uh, surprise. Uh, courts are very public places uh, drawing people from across the community, Uh, clearly that's going to be a space that would be affected. And I think for Massachusetts State Courts in particular, we were really ill-equipped to uh, deal with the obstacles posed by the pandemic. Um, because we were really behind the times technologically uh, both in terms of the equipment we had um, and the skills um, that would be necessary to operate that equipment so we've really been playing um, uh, catch-up as the um, um, weeks have gone by and of course compounding that problem is the unpredictability of the virus itself so um, obviously the, the courts follow the lead of the governor and the governor has uh, very understandably and rationally taken a very step-by-step measured approach week-by-week week, uh, to uh, reopening the state. Uh, but as a result of that, the courts have to move along um, step-by-step as well. So in, since March 13th, as you know, we've operated under a series of orders. Uh, the SJC issues an order then each uh, and that applies to all trial court departments then each trial court department is expected to come up with its own standing order uh, and then each uh, courthouse uh, it comes up with its own plan uh, and that's because the facilities really differ um, in terms of their the structure itself, the number of sessions running in that uh, courthouse, uh, and also um, each courthouse is uh, has clerk's offices that are run by independently elected representatives. Uh, so the, the policies and the protocols varied uh, from courthouse to courthouse. Um, the Superior Court, I think, is on its sixth standing order although the last one was called 7-20 I'm not sure if I ever saw 1-20 um, and I think one notable provision um, in that standing order um, uh, has to do with um, uh, the tolling provisions um, if you recall um, all these orders have es- essentially suspended the period the running of the statutes of limitations uh, but also any other deadlines set by statute court rule uh, standing order um, or guidelines, and, and I just throw out a question for the audience um, um, uh, that uh, Judge Salinger and, and Judge Green, in, in fact, were particularly interested interested in knowing how these tolling provisions have affected um, uh, your practice. Um, um, uh, and so, feel free to um, type that into the question and answer session section um, if you had any um, uh, reactions to that. Um, I think those tolling provisions are gradually being phased out. Um, but uh, certainly the last few months, things have kind of stalled um, um, uh, because um, uh, we've essentially been on hold. Um, um, To date, as you know, the courts remain closed to the public. Um, All proceedings are conducted via Zoom or telephone. Um, I think all of us in BLS prefer Zoom. Um, I, for one, I'm in a criminal session now. I've had some telephone conferences. They're much more difficult uh, than Zoom conferences. Um, uh, Initially, um, we heard only, we were permitted to hear uh, only emergency matters um uh, with priority given to criminal cases and uh, there was a large number of people trying to get out of prison um prison being a very bad place to be uh in a pandemic uh and so to the extent there was any business it was primarily in the criminal side although we did have one emergency hearing that uh, judge salinger conducted in bls2 and i'm sure he'll be talking uh, more about that Uh, Throughout this initial period, the clerk's office was really operating in a very uh, um, um, bare-bones staff Um, and unfortunately, we had no e-filing, we still don't have any e-filing and the Suffolk County Civil Clerk's Office uh, uh, did not and still does not accept filings uh, by email. Um, So, you were certainly able to, and I hope you did, uh, file um, papers in hard copy. They were picked up every day. Um, I think it's fair to say that during that, certainly that first couple months when the staff was um, so small uh, that there was delays in docketing, uh, delays in getting papers to judges, uh, and then getting uh, their decisions out uh, to the parties, and you may very well have experienced that. Um, In early May, um, we were given permission, and I'll say permission because we were, I, I know uh, the, the BLS judges were chomping at the bit um, to start working, uh, but we were finally given p- permission to hear matters um, that were not just an emergency. Um, but we still had to do that with staff limitations. So the um, um, clerks uh, were had been coming in once. Every every 10 days Uh, then they started coming in once a week Uh, now they're up to two days a week Uh, i'm um, expect that they will be uh, in as uh, three days a week in july so it's 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 ramping up uh, but very uh, gradually Uh, they were expected to work from home uh, to the extent possible to check their voicemail to check their email Um, that started slowly as well Uh, but um, uh, I think they've um, 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 certainly um, the clerks and BLS I think have um, are on, on on program to do all that now, so you can still reach them uh, through uh, voicemail or email because they can check that from home. Um, the office on the thirteenth floor is uh, still very much in a reduced staff, uh, and so you're still going to um, experience delays um, around the same time that is in early May, the Suffolk county um, Judges um, uh, and uh, some other judges, not all Superior Court judges, but at least the ones in Suffolk County, uh, including the BLS, uh, got uh, Zoom licenses. Uh, that is without that 40 minute limitation. Um, it's fair to say that some of us are much more capable at Zoom than others. I'm probably the least capable. Um, my first Zoom conference um, a few weeks ago, I had 15 lawyers and a screen, and um, I had was used to bringing my laptop out to the courtroom and um, earlier when I was doing uh, business sound. previously, I wasn't aware that, of the fact that Zoom really saps or sucks up your battery, and about halfway through my computer died and I did not have my power plug uh, to resume it, so I had to kind of scurry around. I won't make that mistake again, but we really are learning as we go, and I think we've gotten a lot better. Oh. Yep, and I haven't figured out how to turn off my phone during the Zoom conference. Um, So, um, but we do have um, uh, this uh, Zoom capability. The criteria for accepting cases into the BLS has not changed at all. We still have a very high acceptance rate. We still uh, transfer cases from regular civil sessions. Uh, But uh, looking at the numbers, and I, I don't have an accurate tally, uh, but I think it's fair to say that the business has really slowed down. Uh, much fewer filings, and I think, frankly, not just in new cases, but also in terms of the business coming in. I think that's picked up in the last month, um, but I understand that in March and April, not surprisingly, it was pretty pretty slow. Um, although the clerk's office, as I said, does not accept email filing, um, I have um, encouraged, um, I think the judges have encouraged um, The parties to submit courtesy copies versus via email, and uh, I issued a decision recently in a BLS case where I directed my clerk to actually send the parties uh, my decision. Uh, At the same time, I was having it sent up for docketing, um, with the understanding that it really wasn't, you know, the the official time in which it was docketed was the, the 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 most important time, but I wanted to get them that uh, piece of paper quickly, and I was concerned that snail mail would uh, cause undue delay. So we are using email. Um, In terms of what the future holds, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, um, there's gonna be a slow reopening of the courthouse um, in the next few months, I expect. But it's going to be with a long list of conditions. And uh, we judges have gotten a preview um, of um, those conditions. It's conditions that have been um, followed uh, by a number of countries uh, in different parts of the world, and we're drawing on that experience. Um, screenings at the door, people getting questioned on uh, when they come in, temperature checks, uh, a limitation on the number of people who could be on the building at any time. That might mean that staff is gonna have to work on rotation. Um, uh, clerk's office upstairs is gonna have to be uh, equipped with plexiglass divisions. Uh, other offices uh, similarly, plexiglass installations, um, markers on courtroom benches uh, and at tables to uh, enforce uh, social distancing, uh, masks required of everyone that enters. Um, I'm in the courthouse today. Uh, when I'm in court uh, um, with the clerk, I have a mask as does she. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about what to expect uh, in connection with trials, but, but um, just generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that most of the business on the civil side and certainly in BLS will continue to be done uh, via a Zoom uh, for the near future. <clears throat> um, I think there's some silver linings to all this. Um, um, I found that um, remote hearings, um, probably make it easier uh, for people to participate. Clients, for example, it's easy for them to dial in. Uh, people don't have to fly in from different parts of the country in order to attend. They can work from their office or even their home. Um, it's therefore probably more cost efficient. Um, the work of the BLS, I think, is generally less focused on trials, which is a good thing. Um, we um, uh, uh, Many of the Our matters can be easily dealt with uh, via Zoom with no big um, disadvantage. And perhaps, as I said, some advantage in the sense that people are able to attend, um, uh, more people are able to attend. Um, And uh, many of you are from firms that do have uh, the technology. Uh, So it's not as if we're dealing with people who uh, don't have access um, 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 to um, the necessary equipment and skills, Uh, you do. and i guess the final thing and, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more um, it really has forced us the state courts that is into the 21st century uh it's slow going we're not happy with the pace at which we're moving um but by necessity uh, we've moved we've had to move uh, faster uh, than we would have um had no pandemic um, happened um so those are my preliminary comments um, and I don't know if there's any questions or comments that have come out of that, or we want to wait until later on in the program. But Judge Sanders, there is one question
2: that somebody had about um, a concern about the statute of limitations and the tolling between the the, the conflict between the two. Our statute limitations are going to be tolled by the court as well as um, the other deadlines that we have.
1: So well, my, my, my view is that in the standing order specifically states that this, uh, the, the time is told and it actually tells you how to calculate it. Um, so does any other panelists um, have any comments on that? Um, I think that some point, I, my memory is very soon, uh, those tolling provisions are gonna um, go by the wayside. Um, but as far as I know, there's this time was essentially excluded. Uh, by virtue of that provision. And I would you just suggest go read the the standing order. I have to go back myself and read it. it. Just doesn't stick in my mind very well. Does any panelists have any comments on that?
3: I think you're right that it's in the standing order. And I, for some reason, I think it might be um, either June 1st or July 1st. Well, I think
2: it's, uh, judges, I think it's more of a concern that um, it's, a, it's a statutory issue and not necessarily a, a rule-based issue. So, yes, we can, you know, toll the rules, um, the deadlines that have to do with rules. But if it's um, something to do with, you know, the deadline um, based upon a statute, it's a little bit more concerning. Well, I
1: think, I think the standing order specifically set refers to deadlines set by statute. Okay. And this is, this is a SJC order. So this is not just, you know, one of us or even the Superior Court saying, well, don't worry about the statute of limitations. This is the state Supreme Court saying, don't worry about the statute of limitations. So I wouldn't be concerned um, about that. Um, uh, I, I think this, yeah the standing order. I have,
3: I have it in front of me. Okay. It, um, basically, it says, as provided in uh, the SJC's May Fourth Order, unless otherwise ordered by a judge, all deadlines set forth in statutes or court rules, et cetera, um, that expired or will expire between March 16th and June 1, 2020 are told until June 1, 2020. Um, That's uh, standing order 6-20. I think standing order 7-20 um, I don't have it with me, but it may I think
1: it says the same thing. I think it says pretty much the same thing. Um, I think I think it's still June first too. Um, I don't. I should probably call that up to make sure. But yeah.
4: Can I just jump in and say I've heard in other forums concern by practitioners as to whether the SJC's order actually will stay or will toll statutory deadlines Um, I I'm not a betting person but remember that the question of whether that standing order is effective to toll statutory deadlines will go to the SJC so I'm I I, if I had to wager I would wager that it likely will be effective
0: sounds good okay so um, we have one other question but I I promised the person who entered it that it's on the agenda to hit so we can save that one for a little bit and with that we're going to turn to the topic of what's happening now in bls one and two and um judge salinger i think is going to kick us off with a question for the
5: audience yeah. sure i'll put out the question and then i think judge green is going to start us off on the topic the the question if you have thoughts um, the many of you who are who are listening in or watching this, by the way, I I see there right now, 79 attendees in addition to the the panelists and the moderators. So that's an even more impressive turnout that we've had in past years live, which underscores what I think Judge Sanders was saying, the technology can make it easier for people to participate. So it's very strange. To be speaking to you all and not see any of you, Uh, but it's nice that so many people are, in fact, uh, listening in. So, one of the things Judge Green and I are about to talk about is what's been going on and our experience and tips we might have Mm -hmm. about conducting, especially hearings, um, through a video remote hookup. We'd love to know whether you all have thoughts about things that you think have worked well or thoughts you might suggest as to how things could work better. So, if you want to type those into the Q&A section in the next few minutes, that would be great. Um, Judge Green, you wanna actually start us off on the substantive topic?
3: Sure, so BLS-1 and I know BLS-2 um, remains open for the handling of all civil business other than trials currently. Um, We've continued to rule on and to schedule hearings on Rule 9A motions and to work on decisions throughout the pandemic, including from home. Since March 13th, all of the hearings in BLS-1 have been virtual Zoom hearings. Currently, the hearings are being held from um, the courtroom on Mondays and Tuesdays. And since the reopening of the courthouse to staff members on May 4th, I have prioritized the scheduling of emergency and rescheduled hearings over hearings on newly filed motions. Um, one of the questions we were asked is um, how we prioritize and work. And uh, you know, I, I'll leave it to Judge Salinger to um, state how he's doing it, but that's how it's being done in BLS. One, I've not yet held an evidentiary hearing by Zoom, but I have scheduled and heard closing arguments in bench trials. My impression, based on the scheduling of Rule 16 and status conferences is that some parties are continuing to move cases along while a considerable number of others are not and I'm sure it's for a variety of reasons. Um, We were also asked what's the best way to reach our session clerk. I think in BLS1, it is to send them an email. Um, uh, Why don't I turn it over to you, Ken, and then we can turn to the challenges I don't know if you want to talk about what's going on now, and then we can separately turn to um, the challenges and assessment from the judicial perspective on how it's going.
5: Sure, for BLS-2, which is where I'll be sitting through the end of this week until I disappear on two weeks of vacation that I'm very much looking forward to, uh, we've been doing much the same as what Judge Green just described for BLS-1. Our focus, now that we're back in business, has been to catch up on hearings of major dispositive motions that we couldn't get to. And we're, we're caught up on those hearings. I've been able to issue many of those decisions. We have not been so much trying to uh, bring people in uh, by telephone or Zoom for, for scheduling conferences or pretrial conferences because the various standing orders with the automatic tolling of deadlines has dealt with most of that. Other folks have sent in joint motions on their own asking for specific changes to deadlines. I've been allowing those. I think we're gonna start in the very near future getting to the point where it makes sense to once again be speaking with BLS judges about how to schedule things going forward. If you have a case where you think it really would benefit from a Rule 16 scheduling conference or uh, from a final pretrial conference that hasn't happened yet, by all means, uh, reach out to the session clerk, flag it, and they'll get that scheduled. Um, The session clerks, as as Judges Sanders and Green were explaining, when they're not in the building, they are able to access their email, they're able to access their their voicemail, they're able to stay in, in business to some extent. Unfortunately, at this point, most clerks on the days when they're not allowed to be in the courthouse can't access the docketing system. And so the ability to do their job is somewhat constricted because they'll only have the information about a case that you tell them in an email or voicemail message. They can't look up the docket themselves until they're next back in the courthouse building. So you should just be aware of that. Um, yeah, Judge Green, you wanna to turn to thoughts on what's been working or what our concerns are and the practicalities of, of remote hearings? Sure,
3: well, so we were asked to comment on the challenges and our sense of how things are going. In terms of the challenges, what um, Judge Salinger just described has probably been one of the major challenges, which is that the clerks lack basic hardware and software and training to schedule and conduct, um, initially lacked it uh, to schedule and conduct Zoom hearings. We still don't have a universally approved means to record Zoom hearings other than through FTR which requires that both judges and clerks um, must be in the courtroom to conduct remote hearings, um, which obviously isn't ideal during a pandemic. We also don't have a generally available means of public access to the hearings yet, although people are devising uh, various workarounds, um, which vary from uh, court to court. Nevertheless, since March 16th, I think I've had only one hearing uh, which involved any technical difficulties. And I actually told Judge Salinger about it this week. Um, And, you know, those technical difficulties resulted from an issue with the sound system at the law firm. Um, So, um, and and a lack of an extension cord behind my bench. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but even in that hearing uh counsel was able to switch quickly to his cell phone uh, when he he had a problem with his computer and get back right back into the hearing and the hearing continued in terms of how things are going i actually think that video hearings are far superior to telephone hearings the sound quality is better and um you know, obviously the, the uh, visual cues are evident. From my perspective, Zoom video hearings can actually be preferable to live ones. Uh, depending on what courthouse you work in, the sound and sight lines are often better than some courtrooms. And the Zoom view, as you all can see, um, displays the name of every participant in the hearing. And um, as Judge Sanders has already said, it's just way more efficient and less costly for you and for clients. Like Chief Justice Gantz, I hope and expect that some changes made in court processes to respond to the public's need during this period will remain even after the pandemic ends. In terms of tips, If you don't have video capabilities on your device, don't worry, you can participate by phone only and still participate in the Zoom hearing. If you do experience a technical issue, advise the court and simply log into the session, as that gentleman did this week, from a different device, including your cell phone, or dial in and participate without video. We're all... um, working the as hard as we can to keep things going and you know there'll be some glitches but let's just get it done if you wish to have a client or another person view the hearing in lot real time simply advise the clerk of the person's email address so the clerk can then invite that person to the zoom session on a muted only basis And then, I mean, very simple and obvious things, make sure your computer is positioned so that everyone can see your entire face. Um, I I had one uh, hearing where I think the the participant didn't appreciate that we were all looking at his ceiling. Um, And then if you can avoid feedback by um, uh-huh. ensuring that when one lawyer is in the same room as his or her own laptop, you're not too close together because that can result in um unwanted feedback issues,
5: Ken yeah, I've also liked the uh the video platform as a way to conduct substantive hearings if it's you know a simple conversation about scheduling. Um, and it's just a few parties doing it by phone can work just as well, but these days the, the video platform is, is getting pretty common. As, as you've heard, the Superior Court has gravitated to it and is using Zoom in particular rather than one of the competing platforms, so you need to get conversant with it. You need to get comfortable with it. We're all going to need to learn new sets of skills. All the lawyers who are listening in or watching today, you, you know What you're supposed to do in a courtroom. You know where to stand, you know how to stand, you know how to move, you know how to present, and we all need to figure out what that means for this new interface. Developing the habit of looking at the camera when you're speaking rather than looking at somebody's face on the screen or your notes is a little strange, but you need to do it because if you look at the camera, your audience feels like you're talking to them. Uh, You need to think about, as Judge Green was saying, where you're positioned. You don't want to be too close to the camera because, you know, that's just weird. Um, And you also don't want to be too far away because it's strange, too. Uh, About what's behind you. So I'm talking to you from my home, um, and I've got a virtual background up. For those of you who are missing the Suffolk County Courthouse, this is a picture of what is behind Judge Sanders or me when we're in courtroom 1017. If you're using a computer with enough power, you can use a virtual background. Choose something appropriate, please. Uh, But if you're not there, then be conscious of what's on the screen behind you because that's gonna be seen by the judge and the other participants. You have to think about lighting. Don't sit with a bright window behind you or you'll just look like this blackish gray blob. Um, Try to get some sort of lighting on your face. I think the hardest thing about this format that we all need to work on is how to make a substantive hearing be a conversation between each lawyer and the judge rather than a series of monologues. I well remember when I was a practicing lawyer, how frustrating it would be if I had an appearance where the judge was just sitting there passively listening the whole time and I couldn't figure out what was really on the judge's mind. Um, as on, as a judge now, I hope I don't interrupt too much. And if you disagree, feel free to let me know. Um, But I do try to let people know what I'm concerned about, make sure that I understand the points each side is making. And in this kind of format, there's inherently a bit of a lag between when somebody speaks and when everybody else actually sees and hears that. So you need to pause a little bit more than you normally would and make sure you're giving the judge an opportunity to ask a clarifying question. If you just keep going without pause, it's gonna be a monologue and I'm assuming that's not really what you want. Why don't I pause there? Maybe uh, uh, Judge Davis, Judge Sanders, or our moderators have some ideas or maybe there are questions that have popped up that should become part of the conversation.
0: I think Judge Sanders had a comment and then we actually have a bunch of questions, but we'll go to Judge Sanders first.
1: So this whole idea of how uh, public access for these remote hearings is something that we've all had our own little workarounds for, um, and we're doing, people are doing it differently. I can just tell you what I'm doing right now on the criminal session, and I will continue to do it when I move into BLS in a couple weeks. And that is, I set up a single Zoom invitation for a morning session. It's the same recurring meeting every day. Um, and I make it a three-hour long uh, session, even though I will tell the parties, Um, to come at different times, perhaps during that morning session. Uh, Same thing for the afternoon. I have a single invitation for the afternoon. So I don't have to keep making invitations. I send the invitation to the clerk. I then tell the clerk to send it to the parties and tell the parties they can send it to whoever they want. They don't need to get my permission. People can walk into a courtroom from the street. And so anybody can receive that invitation. Uh, What we're still challenged about is how do we let I mean, the, the lawyers will now know to invite whoever they want. But how do I let the, the, the general public know about this hearing? Uh, and it seems to me there must be a is a way of posting a list um, uh, for the here the day, the cases I'm going to hear that day with the Zoom information about um, uh, so they can access it um, and actually get into the Zoom hearing. I have disabled my waiting room so people, but I do um, have them so they're on mute and the video stopped, so I had some control over it. Um, I I haven't had any problems in that regard. I don't know if there's some, it's possible, I guess, that somebody could disrupt a proceeding just as somebody could disrupt a court proceeding. Um, um, But I think because of the controls I have over the video and the audio, I could probably um, uh, prevent any problems. So that's the way I've dealt with public access and the way I've issued the Zoom invitations.
0: Judge Sanders, on that note, one of the questions from the audience that we have is, whether the court or the BLS has considered at all posting um Zoom conferences to YouTube. They'd heard that some some courts are doing that.
5: Do you you want me to start on that? Yes. So it's it's easy enough to broadcast live stream something that's on Zoom to YouTube. Um, I happened to be the first superior court judge to do that because back in April I happened to field a emergency preliminary injunction motion on a case that ended up being a BLS case um, that got a lot of uh, publicity at the time. This was the challenge by some adult use marijuana establishments to Judge Baker's uh, order that they remain closed even while he was deeming medical marijuana establishments and liquor stores to be essential and allowing them to open. We knew there was press interest. We knew we had to provide live access and we made that available on YouTube. Um, The Appeals Court's been doing that regularly. It's in a sense easier for the Appeals Court because you know, at most they have two hearings going at a time. If you're gonna stream something live to YouTube, you need a channel to stream it to. Uh, I think the Superior Court is still trying to figure out if that's the right way to go and if so, does that mean there need to be 82 channels available? So every single judge has their own YouTube channel and if not, how would it work? And so the mechanics people are thinking about it and are, are working to come up with a solution for public access that will work throughout the state and for all kinds of sessions and uh, still a work in progress.
3: Judge Davis may have more information on that, right?
4: And Brian, you're on mute. Yes, yeah, sorry, the phone was ringing earlier and I didn't want to disrupt. Uh, th- there are a very limited number of YouTube channels available to the Superior Court right now. So as Judge Salinger mentioned, uh, he used one of, I think, two YouTube channels that the Superior Court currently has. So it, in order to expand YouTube coverage, we would. We'd have to dramatically increase the number of channels. Uh, another possibility that we are exploring is simply, yes, publishing either on mass courts, on mass.gov, the uh, meeting IDs for each of the sessions on a daily basis and letting people just connect via Zoom, if they wish. And as Judge Sanders said, if they have their audio off and they have their video off, as far as I'm concerned, it's just the same as someone sitting in the back of the courtroom. Uh, so I, I, I've told people who have uh, sat in uh, on virtual proceedings that I've had, that they are in fact sitting in the back of my virtual courtroom, welcome. Uh, please again, keep your mic off keep your uh, and keep your uh, video off, but you're more than welcome to sit in and listen and watch the proceedings. And I think that works just about as well. We'll we'll have to see, for example, I think Zoom can accommodate at least 500 participants if you have a pro license, which is what each of the judges have. So I'm I'm guessing that there aren't gonna be many Superior Court proceedings where we need a bigger audience to accommodate a bigger audience than that. And I just wanna
5: underscore Judge Davis's tip that if you're inviting clients, colleagues, whomever to listen in, that's absolutely fine. From my perspective, it re- is really helpful if um, non-active participants not only are mute, so they don't accidentally make noise, but so their video is off. That way, if I have my Zoom setting uh, showing a gallery view, it automatically pops up the people who actually have video, makes it easy for me to pay attention to the lawyers without being distracted by other observers, as Judge Davis said, much like in a courtroom, the people behind the bar, I know they're there, but I don't need to focus on them. So um, that that definitely works well from my perspective. And I've certainly heard, um, as Judge Sanders was saying, from, from some lawyers, they really like that more of their clients are able to tune in and, and see what their lawyer is doing and what some judge might be doing with their case. Uh, a client who would never be able to make the time to come to court may well be able to observe an online proceeding.
0: So uh, does anybody else have a comment on that? Or if not, I'll, I'll move to another question. So one question that's been posed is about the expiring deadlines and scheduling orders. And so if litigants scheduling orders are expiring, but right now we still don't have great certainty about when court proceedings and all the deadlines will start back up as normal, should they start sending in joint motions to issue new scheduling orders now or should they hold off a little
3: bit longer? I I, I have to say that people have been submitting um, scheduling orders and I've been having um, scheduling conferences and uh, my view has been that if people are ready to go and are able to continue business and they have a schedule they've agreed to I'm gonna order
0: it. Does anybody else have any any response?
4: The only other thing I would add is, so there's gonna be another iteration of the SJC's operations order coming down. We'll see what that does with tolling deadlines. Mm-hmm. I, I expect that that'll happen before the end of this month. Uh, there has been certainly, I think the SJC has been made aware of some of the concerns that have been expressed by the bar that some cases have been effectively brought to a halt because of tolling of deadlines. So for example, if you have a non-cooperative party in Discovery who insists that all the deadlines have been told, you can't make much forward progress. So that's been the SJC has been made aware of that. I, maybe it'll have some impact on what they do in their next operations order, we'll see. I will, I, I, the only thing I would offer to all the attorneys is we're gonna try to be reasonable about this. I resume DLS one in July so uh, certainly we, everybody understands what impact this has had across the board. So we will try to be reasonable about deadlines. I agree with Judge Green that if the parties have joint deadlines that they want to propose, happy to have those. But I think I, if I were attorneys within reason, I wouldn't sweat the notion that you're gonna be caught uh, either unawares or that you're, there's gonna be a getcha And the deadlines here. We're going to, it's putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's going to require cooperation of everyone, including the court. We're going to do our best to hold up our end of that deal.
3: And I should clarify that what I mean is tolling applies unless people choose by agreement to uh, be affirmed. The only other exception to that is where. A bench trial was in process and um, you know there was one case where it was appropriate to bring the parties in and ask them when we could do the closing arguments Um, and even that was by agreement.
0: Thank you Judge Green. Judge Sanders did you have something you wanted to
1: Add to that. Yeah, yeah you know, I do think, I'm sure the bar is somewhat concerned about all the cases that had dates between March 13th to date that were canceled. Um, and we were all provided with those lists of those cases. Um, and I know that um, um, both sessions have, uh, I, I think, have prioritized as positive motions and are probably pretty current on those. I just got a list from BLS-2, sometime going there in a couple of weeks. Um, and um, I intend to try to get all those cases, not just the have been tended to, um, thanks to Judge Salinger, um, but I'm going to bring all those cases in if I can for some kind of status conference, and anybody who's asked, already asked for one, they're going to go first. I know that they want to see me, so I'm going to put them on the list and, um, um, as, as soon as I can, and then people who have not asked, I'm going to start bringing those people in as well. So the idea, just like I'm doing here in the criminal, is that for all those cases, they're going to see a judge um, in the next couple of months.
0: Thank you Judge Sanders, and we um We have a lot of questions about e-filing, so we'll turn to that next. One last question about the Zoom um, hearings before we move on is if you have any advice about how to handle documents and sharing documents during the hearings since the share screen is
3: disabled. Um, Actually, the share screen um, was not disabled in the one case I had where someone was seeking to share a screen, um, so I'm wondering.
4: Nope. Yeah, it doesn't have to be disabled. It
5: doesn't
3: have to be disabled.
4: Right,
5: the share screen, judges can tailor their own personal settings. Some judges may have by default turned off share screen, mm-hmm. but even if they have done that in the middle of a hearing, the host, if it's the judge or the clerk, whomever has control can enable share screen. So if you want to be sharing something, um, My suggestion would be don't surprise the judge. Let the clerk know beforehand, hey, there are some things that would be useful if we can put them up on the screen, Um, and and share screen is is a fine way to do that. Uh, You don't want to use the technology in a way that's uh, less helpful than how you would share something in court, of course, Um, and so you want to be judicious in your use of it uh, depending on the hearing of the matter. Sometimes it's easier for me as the judge if somebody is wanting to make sure I look at a particular paragraph of a contract or see a particular email to go to where it is in the actual motion papers. That way I know where it is in the papers. Um, Different judges have different styles and preferences. I'm in the camp of finding it less helpful when lawyers want to in the middle of a live hearing hand up a courtesy copy of something and say, oh, trust me, it's in the papers. And so because I want to know where it actually is in the papers. So for me, it's often more useful and instead of you asking to put it up on the screen, just help me find it, then I'll I'll know where it really is. But absolutely share screen is, is can be a beautiful feature of of Zoom um, and it's there for for use when it's helpful and, and moves things forward.
0: Okay, any other comments on um, these topics of the hearings or moving the cases along before we move on to e-filing? All right, well, I'm gonna turn it over to Judge Davis to give a status update about e-filing because based off the questions, everyone is most interested in if that's coming and if so, when.
4: I'm just looking right now at some of the questions that have been submitted on that topic. Uh, here's, Here's the The naked truth, which is so I think the Superior Court has made tremendous strides in technology, for example, in conducting virtual hearings. Um, Personally, folks, I didn't know Zoom existed three and a half months ago. So, and uh, we're now doing virtual hearings regularly, I think, in many sessions across the Commonwealth on Zoom each day. You're going to see, I think, an even more significant increase in the number of sessions and the number of hearings in July as we roll out sort of more improvements. But in any event, so that we've made tremendous strides, we can't move e-filing as quickly. So e-filing, it's a, there are a number of components of e-filing. We have Tyler technologies, we have that system, it's been in place for a while, it's still being piloted, I think in three of the counties. So, but the Tyler system really is just a system that allows the parties to submit, to file their e-file documents with the court, uh, recognize that there are a whole bunch of other pieces Uh, that are necessary to put in place before we really have an e-court, which means, for example, that once you've filed your document, we need to be able to handle that document both in the clerk's office and in the bench and in the courtroom, uh, in in, in chambers, in order to be able to effectively have uh, e-courts. So some of the pieces, Tyler is just one piece of that continuum. Other pieces, we're working on them. So, uh, for example, uh, courts have been. There is, in fact, a e-file, an a e-courts program underway in the trial court level that's got a dedicated staff working on making e-filing a an e-courts a reality. Hopefully, don't have the exact timeline yet. They're working on the timeline, but uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, we are piloting uh, in the in the near future uh, the hardware and software that will allow judges to operate and utilize and manipulate uh, e-file documents, both in chambers and on the bench. Uh, that's a, a product, the one that we're gonna be piloting is called Judicial Tools. It's provided by a company by the name of Equivant. That's the same company that developed mass courts. Don't hold that against them. Um, and in any event, we're using it. It's, it's a, a wonderful product in the sense that it works well, it plays well with mass courts. So that product is going to be in the piloting stage over the next few months. I'm going to be one of the pilots. So we're going to plan on using that, see how it works, uh, and understanding that that's one of the pieces that we have to put in place, really across the courts, so that we can be ready to catch all the e-file documents that we know the parties want to file. So it would have been nice if we had an ECF system like the federal courts have Uh, And I know that that's caused some frustration for practitioners. There was an article, I think at Mass Lawyers Weekly not long ago, that sort of giving the various courts their grades on how they've handled this pandemic. I think given the technology available to the superior courts, we've done pretty well. Uh, We were, as Judge Sanders mentioned, we were behind the eight ball technologically. We're trying to catch up. Uh, E-filing, I I wish I could give you a timeline as to when it will be implemented. I don't think it's gonna happen this year, not across all counties. keep your fingers crossed, about 2021.
5: And just want to underscore when Judge Davis talks about, you know, many pieces need to be put in place or upgraded, um, do understand that the resources historically that have been put into technology uh, for the trial court, including the superior court, are not the same as elsewhere. Um, The laptops we are issued are, are very slow and underpowered. I used to joke when I when I came on the court, oh, coming up on eight years ago, that seemed like the laptop that was issued to me was powered by a gerbil running on a wheel. And then I got a newer laptop and I realized, ah, yes, they put in a second gerbil. Uh, (laughs) It's very slow. The internet and intranet connections we have when lots of people are using them, trying to download things is very slow. So right now, if I'm at work and I go onto mass courts and I wanna just open up a scanned PDF on a document, it can take a really long time. E-filing's not going to work uh, until we get to the point where in real time, judges and law clerks and session clerks can access, make notes on, manipulate um, those electronic documents. We're inching in that direction. We're not there yet.
4: Can I just make one other point on that front, which is what uh, the attendees should know? is there's another wave coming as a result of this pandemic and it's the financial wave that's going to impact the Commonwealth's finances, which means it's gonna impact the court's finances. We already know, we know it's coming. There are cutbacks in the works. So making e-filing happen takes money. Uh, And so what practitioners should know is to the extent that you can talk to anyone out there about whether you want to see this happen and how it can be made to happen uh, they should know it's going to take money. Uh, it, we, the software, the hardware that's going to be necessary in order to make it happen will all require a substantial investment in the trial courts. Uh, hopefully we'll stay on track to do that over the next year or two. Hopefully that will not be derailed by the cutbacks that we see coming. And
0: Jack Jaffis, there was also one question as to why um, Suffolk will not accept email pleadings right now. I don't know if you can address that or if anyone else would like to.
4: Again, uh, that's uh, Clark Donovan's office has made the determination that they do not wish to accept e-file documents. The truth of the matter is the paper documents are still the official record right now until we convert to an e-file system. So they need the paper until such time as it's determined that we're going to go with the electronic record. Uh, so uh, And again, the clerk's office, even though they're more capable now of handling e-file documents than they used to be, they still don't have all the pieces in place to handle a flood of e-file documents. So we're taking it a step at a time. We're still a paper-based system until we have the pieces in place. Suffolk isn't there yet. None of the counties are there yet to handle again, a majority of e-filed documents across civil cases.
3: Having said said that, um, I think you will find there are judges who uh, appreciate um, emailed uh, copies of uh, filed documents, particularly during the pandemic when we are carrying literally cartons of documents Back and forth to the courthouse, um, I have found that uh, in voluminous matters, uh, those attorneys who have uh, uploaded volumes of documents to a share file have um, really made it possible for me to access those documents during the pandemic, and I'm most appreciative of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, on an individual basis, I think you may see more use of electronic documents in the BLS going forward. It's, it's helpful to us to have them oftentimes in electronic form. It's just, it's something where it's going to have to be a workaround. It won't be part of the official system. It, for example, so Judge Green mentioned, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll get a flash drive or I'll be directed to a shared file. Uh, in the appropriate cases, happy to have that because it makes our lives easier as well.
0: Thank you, and turning to Judge Sanders to address um, future jury trials versus bench trials.
1: So um, um, I think I said earlier that um, uh, jury trials are a long way off. Uh, there has been much written about this. It shouldn't be any surprise as to why that's the case, although I think some of the judges sitting in the regular civil sessions are still encountering some shock at the fact that they can't get a trial date. Um, But just to kind of review, uh, the facilities um, are not equipped for jury trials. You think of Suffolk County in particular, it's a high-rise building. Uh, uh, People have to get from floor to floor by elevators. Uh, The jury deliberations rooms, the rooms where the jury spend most of their time when they're not hearing the case are tiny uh, with very poor ventilation. The jury boxes, they're shoulder to shoulder. Uh, So the facilities, the Suffolk County Courthouse is not built uh, for a pandemic, uh, a jury trial and a a pandemic. The process um, is not suited to a pandemic. Getting people uh, from the community here who have to ride public transportation is going to be hard. Uh, Jury panels cannot be amassed in groups of 200 and then taken up to courtrooms in groups of 80. Um, uh, And then there's, of course, the jury selection itself that sometimes uh, will take a day or two individual questioning. None of that uh, can happen as long as we're in the middle of this uh, virus. Uh, So um, there's a special committee headed by our our chief, uh, Judy Fabricant, studying this problem. They're looking at how other courts in the world have dealt with this. Of course, we are one of the few countries that have jury trials. (laughs) So we're not getting a whole lot of help there, but they are looking into solutions. Um, uh, still um, my prediction is that this is my personal opinion that you're not going to see a civil jury trial until 2021. Um, when jury trials start they may be happening in another building entirely Um, they will i think it's fair to say the criminal cases will get precedence um, and that makes sense there's people who are held in custody uh, jails are a very bad place to be um, when there's a pandemic. Uh, and so those cases are gonna get priority and it's gonna be one case at a time. Uh, the days of holding multiple trials in a single building are, um, are, uh, are not gonna happen until we have a vaccine. Um, so uh, that said, um, I think the bar is, um, has to really look very hard at whether you're uh, willing to waive a jury trial. Um, and I have to say, and in, in, in BLS in particular, I think that's often the preferred option anyway. Um, um, uh, I think you also have to consider uh, having that bench trial conducted uh, remotely uh, rather than um, uh, live in person. And that's because of the roadblocks I mentioned earlier to having the building open to the public. Uh, there's gonna be a limitation on the number of people who can come into the building. Um, There's going to be a a prohibition against having a large number of people in a single room. So you can't have lawyers, you know, lined up at those council tables um, uh, over long periods of time. Uh, If you insist on a live trial, you may have to uh, stagger the days because uh, we have other sessions in operation. uh, And again, we have to make sure that not too many people are in the building at any one time. And then probably the worst of it is that all the participants are going to have to wear masks. Um, witnesses, lawyers, judge, um, and I would suggest that it's easier to assess credibility when you don't have a mask on, and so if it's a Zoom bench trial, uh, you're at least going to be able to see the person unmasked, um, and that's not going to occur um, uh, if you insisted on have that having that trial um, live. Um, so really think about that option of waiving jury j- jury trial, and then also, re-examine the options in um, Rule 20, um, uh, Superior Court Rules 20. Uh, there's a number of um, um, options there for um, uh, cost-efficient ways to resolve cases. And one in particular I'm fond of that, frankly, lawyers don't seem to be very, very fond of, and that is uh, waiving uh, findings and rulings and bench trials, having the judge um, sign a or fill out a special verdict slip just like a jury would Um, lawyers don't seem to have any problem trusting a jury to do that 12 people um you know uh, off the streets but then when it comes to having a judge do it uh somehow uh they feel like they're sacrificing a lot uh and i've tried to figure this out um um uh what what they think they're sacrificing um Perhaps it's their concern that I'm gonna make a ruling um, or if there's a difference in the, the, the legal principles they think should apply, the parties' differences to that, and I'm not gonna make it clear what legal principle I'm applying, that they've somehow lost some appellate uh, point there, but I think that can be um, dealt with by um, making sure the judge resolves that difference um, ahead of time, um, um, rather than instead insist on that very lengthy written decision. Um, I think if you do insist on having um, uh, findings and rulings, more often than not, there's going to be a lot of delay. Now, Judge Salinger is very good at dictating his opinions. I have not been so good at that. Um, It often takes me um, months because I need to carve out several days of time apart from my regular business uh, to um, uh, make those findings and rulings. So you're gonna build in a considerable delay And I will say 90% of the time I know, I have a sense of how I'm gonna rule um, uh, just like a jury um, um, uh, within a day or two of the trial. And I always try to take a a day or two to think about it. I don't just immediately uh, fill out that special verdict slip. I try to be thoughtful about it, but I generally know how I'm gonna um, rule because these cases are decided on the facts. I mean, that's how they got to trial if it was a legal principle, it would have been decided on summary judgment. Um, so it's often a qu- question of credibility of the witnesses and at uh, the times um, where, for example, there's been a difference in the legal uh, opinion as to the legal principle, I have resolved that by saying, you know, um, um, I, I, this this one party says this is the law, um, even if they were right, I still resolve this this fact question thus and so. so to make it clear that those legal differences really are are not carrying the day. So really think about um, waiving those findings and rulings, particularly if um, we as judges are going to be facing uh, more uh, requests uh, for bench trials. Uh, It's gonna be more and more difficult to get out a speedy decision in that that situation. Um, So that's my spiel on trials. I know we're gonna go into dispositive motions. Uh, Any questions on that? Um, A couple
0: questions Judge Sanders. The first one is what would you do if one party wants a virtual trial and the other will not consent Mm -hmm. where the SJC order gives discretion? Um, And the uh, person asking the question noted that recently another Mm -hmm. court would not order one without agreement.
1: Mm -hmm. Well I know on the criminal side um, remote proceedings pose some constitutional um, difficulties that um, we're very reluctant to uh, do it over um, without agreement. I'm not so sure that's an issue as much in the civil side. Does any, um, any other panelists have any view on that?
5: My view is if it's a bench trial um, for the foreseeable future, I'm gonna be doing it remotely. Um, and, and it's easier if everybody's willing to say, yes, all of our clients agree that's fine, but I think I have the discretion uh, to do that and under the present circumstances, that's what I would do. Look, all of the judges on the BLS, like all of the judges throughout the Superior Court, we are eager to get back to the business of trying cases so that disputes that need to go to trial to be resolved can get resolved. Um, In case Judge Sanders was too subtle, and I don't think she was, um, if you can all convince your clients to waive juries, we can get those cases tried much sooner.
3: And if you can get your clients to waive uh, detailed Findings of fact and conclusions of law and to proceed by way of Rule 20, those will get uh, reached faster as well.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, the only thing I'd add is everyone's gonna have to be patient, uh, recognizing that we're gonna try again to move as much as we can, as quickly as we can. Uh, we're still going to be restricted. As I think Judge Sanders mentioned, you know, right now I don't know how many days we're gonna be permitted to go into the courthouse beginning in July. I'm hopeful that it's gonna be three days a week. But uh, if anyone saw the trial court's guidelines on a slow reopening, you can tell that there's a tremendous focus at the trial court level right now on reducing headcount in all of the court buildings. And that's gonna impact our ability to be in court. We can do some things. I've done some things. This is my home lobby Everyone. <laughs> Welcome, welcome to my home lobby. And I do proceedings from this uh, this location as well. So we will be able to do some things remotely. However, we are still going to be hobbled to some extent. So again, we will move as much as we can, as quickly as we can. I, my, my exhortation to everybody is just please be patient as we try, as I mentioned before, to put Humpty Dumpty back together again.
0: All right, thank you all. I'm gonna turn it over to Barbara and, and move us along to dispositive motion.
2: All right, hi everyone again, and for any the newcomers, if you have any questions or comments, uh, please put them in the question and answer box, and we'll try to reach your question or comment as um, the session progresses, and I'm going to turn this over to Judge Sanders to talk about dispositive motions in, um, in, in the BLS.
1: Well, it's really, I'm just going to kick the topic off, I, I know um, uh, Judge Snellinger and others um, have a lot to say on this topic too, um, given what I said about trials, um, obviously, um, um, dispositive motions are very important, and they've always been important in the BLS. It's, a, it's, it's been our bread and butter, but um, I think it's fair to say that um, um, we will uh, be paying careful attention to it, and it's it's much easier for us to have those kind of hearings um, remotely. Uh, we can get to those um, um, very promptly, and we are getting to those. I have to say I'm still not a big fan of um, motions to dismiss. I think there's still... Um, a lot of motions file without um, uh, real true recognition of what 12B6 um, requires of the parties in terms of the com- specificity of the complaint. Um, and I'm still not particularly fond of partially dispositive motions. Uh, there is a procedural rule we have about that. Um, but I will say this um, that given that we're not going to, that trials are a long way off, um, I am um, perhaps um, more open than I ever was, not that I felt. I was frankly never. I only prevented people from far, filing these motions in a few times, <laughs> but um, I think I will be more open to uh, permitting partially dispositive motions if you can make a colorable argument that it would somehow facilitate settlement, uh, uh, in some way um, narrow the dispute, um, uh, and perhaps make uh, trial unnecessary. Um, I um, there's a requirement of the standing order that I had uh, been a stickler for enforcing and that is the requirement that you talk to the judge ahead of time. I'd rejected um, a couple of dispositive motions, um, partially dispositive motions because they ignored that requirement. They just simply sent a letter to the clerk that I never saw, um, or they just filed it, um, and I sent it back. Um, um, what I think we're um, prepared to do now, I think Judge Salinger's already doing it, is so long as, um, um, if there's a disagreement in um, and, and a difference of opinion, or even if there's agreement, uh, that you um, rather than request or require a status conference, that, that we would be okay with you sending in a letter, one page, just one page. Um, if it's disagreed, perhaps you know one one page letter from each party. This is why it, you should permit a judge. This is why you should not permit it, and then we wouldn't have to have that status conference because. We have plenty of other cases that we're trying to get in for status um already so um i'm i think that we're prepared to be a little more lenient uh, on that particular requirement but we still want some reason for why um, this is worth our time um uh, still um those dispositive motions i think um, are of renewed importance so with that i think i would turn things over The judge salinger is going to address some um, uh this topic first is that our plan
5: sure so I think I was asked by our moderators to, to focus on the now almost two years old revisions on in Superior Court Rule 9A. I'm not gonna go through the revisions, we've done that previously. Um, you all in the audience are familiar with the rule or you can read the rule if you need to remind yourselves. Um, do remember that that a big part of what was changed is, is some of the guidance or direction as to uh, what happens when you put together with opposing parties the statement of undisputed material facts on motions for summary judgment, Rule 9a, B-5. A lot of the changes were motivated in particular by experience in BLS. Judge Kaplan was a, a, a big moving part of, of why those changes to Rule 9a happened. The intent of all those changes was to make the statement of undisputed mor- material facts turn it back into something that really helps the judge focus on the material facts and figuring out the basis for something being in dispute or not in dispute. Uh, In my experience, I think people are getting um, better at doing what the revised rule asks, uh, although there are uh, some key parts where I've not consistently seen it. So I just wanna touch on some of that. Uh, The revised rule says, you should leave out background facts, trying to remind you what's material. I have s- still seen sets of papers where the um, statement of, of material facts includes things like the date the complaint was filed in a case where a statute of limitations is not being raised as an issue. Um, other things that really are just background facts. Please just focus on, on what matters to the motion. That, that's the point. Um, I'm still seeing Uh, Folks not always following the the new rule that says you should uh, not include quotations from or characterizations of documents like contracts. Contract says what it says. You might need the other side to admit that this contract was entered into, but then save for your memorandum, your characterization of it. It's not helpful to the judge to have a long duplication of argument in the statement of facts. Um, Similarly, um, the rule says you should not, in your response to a statement of undisputed facts, uh, quibble there about relevance or materiality, and I see people um, not following that. You just can't bring yourselves to hold back and save it for your memorandum, but that's really, really what we want. It's not useful in the statement of facts for you to say, well, sure, the fact is true, but let me, for the next three pages, tell you why it has no bearing on the outcome of the case. Now that we want to see that argument in your memorandum. That's where we're going to be looking for it. If it's cluttering up the statement of facts, that document becomes much less useful to the judge. Another thing that is in the rule um, that seems minor, but again, it's it's trying to make life easier for make, make the papers more that the uh, joint appendix either needs to have consecutive page numbers which rarely happens once in a while it's easy enough to you know run it through somebody's copy or make that happen or it's got to have actual tabs for the exhibits so the judges can find things um, I, I still often see papers not doing that and th- the reason is because it makes it much harder to use your filing use your memorandum if you say go take a look at page 10 of Exhibit L, and it takes me 10 minutes to find Exhibit L because it's just buried in a massive paper. If there was a tab L that I could turn to, then I could I could keep up. So the little nits may seem like little nits, but really, please do file them. Um, I guess my overall point is that just like at trial, the, the point is, is you, you are engaged in an exercise of advocacy. You don't conduct a trial merely to create a record for an appellate court, if that's your goal, it's going to be much harder to win, right? Your goal is to win and in the process you'll naturally create a good record. Well, the same is true of, of motion papers. It's, it's an exercise of advocacy, it's an art of advocacy, focusing the judge on the points that you think are going to convince the judge to rule in your client's favor cluttering things up is not the way to get there and that's that's even true if you are opposing a motion for summary judgment Uh, the most effective way to convince a judge to deny summary judgment is very clearly and simply say see this key material point they rely on it's in dispute here's where in the record you can see it and if you do that clearly the motion gets denied if you just end up deliberately or inadvertently creating confusion in your papers, that is not going to increase the odds that the summary judgment motion will be denied. So that's, that's not a good approach. Um, just the only other observation that I'll throw out there and then ask other judges to chime in, um, I was reminded recently um, that although the, the rule tries to do a good job about uh, saying what should happen with the flow of paper when there's a summary judgment motion, or even when in response there's a cross motion, the judge does, the the judge, the rule does not explicitly talk about how you all should coordinate your work when simultaneously two sides are serving summary judgment motions. So if you know that's what's gonna happen, please talk to each other, set up times where you can confer, maybe by Zoom, maybe by phone, and figure out how to make sure that things get presented in a useful manner, too long ago, um, sometime during my current sitting, since January 1st, I, I had some rather complicated sets of summary judgment papers. There were a lot of parties. Everybody at the same time served summary judgment motions. And I ended up with two or three copies of the same thing in exhibits. I ended up being confused about um, whether things were identical copies or, or different. The papers were very hard for me as the judge to handle, because the lawyers hadn't figured out in advance, okay, we know this is gonna happen. We're all gonna be moving for summary judgment. We might disagree vehemently about the, the meaning of, of the key documents, but if we all know what the documents are, let's put together a single set of papers we all can work with. So please take that on and, and don't leave it to the judge to, to sort through lots of duplicates. Uh, colleagues, what words of advice do you have to add?
3: I don't know if it's uh, advice so much, but one of the things I'm seeing is that people um, don't, uh, some people continue to not respond disputed or undisputed and to uh, make arguments in response to statements of fact. And I would just invite people to um, notice that the rule, Uh, provides that a court can deem admitted a statement of fact unless it's properly controverted in accordance with the rule.
4: Brian, I'll mention, yes. I'll mention that um, I have a footnote that I have used on more than one occasion that specifically picks up on that point that Judge Green was making, which you'll find in Superior Court Rule 9A, B, 5, Small Roman numeral three A, which provides that for purposes of summary judgment, each fact set forth in the moving party statement of facts is deemed to have been admitted unless properly controverted in the manner set forth in this paragraph. So uh, you can expect at least in the motions for summary judgment that I handle, if you haven't disputed it, if you haven't and you haven't cited a basis for your dispute, you, very, you run a very high risk that it'll be deemed admitted. And that's, that's absolutely necessary for us to, in order to resolve these motions. Because I, it, it's designed, I think it's referred to in the appellate decisions as the anti-ferreting rule. It means that we don't have to spend a lot of time going through the motion papers to try to understand why it is. Do you really dispute this? Do you, if, if you don't, and if you do dispute it, what's the basis for your dispute? Because remember, we're looking for material issues, genuinely disputed issues of material fact. Others.
5: Since there's a lull, I'm going to throw out a uh, request and tip that I know I've made in this forum before. And some of the lawyers who are watching and listening have taken the advice to heart um, and have started providing tables of contents for mm-hmm. their le- lengthy memoranda. But many of you don't. Um, please do. It's, it's incredibly helpful to me um, to have a table of contents that um, is a nice summary of your arguments, everything that's in there. And then when I'm working for many hours or days on a decision on some particularly complicated set of papers, it lets me quickly find things without having to, um, if in effect, create a table of contents with my own little slices of yellow stickies. So I think it's a great advocacy opportunity for you all. It doesn't count against your page limit. We find it really helpful. Please give us tables of contents. And the
3: only other thing I would say is, um, I would repeat the tip I gave in a different segment, which is if you have a complicated motion for summary judgment with lots of exhibits um, and you can provide the court with access to a share file site from which the documents can be downloaded, placed in um, a tool like Goodreader and kept organized so that there's not paper everywhere um, it would be most appreciated.
4: Mm-hmm. Can I just w- add one further point, which I know I've mentioned before, but I'll hit it again, which is your motion should contain a summary, a brief summary of your arguments. You should explain to me in your motion, not in the memo, but in the motion itself, very briefly, why it is that you think you're entitled to, for example, summary judgment. Because I, I t- I'll tell you when I pick up that package, First thing I look at is the motion, and if the motion says, for the reasons stated in our memo, you should grant summary judgment, I sigh. <laughs> and then I, I put aside the motion and I begin to dig into the other papers. So I, I just mentioned you're passing up you know, a wonderful opportunity to orient me about your case and about your motion by just making a, you know, a summary motion that doesn't really describe why it is that you think you're entitled to the relief that you seek. Uh, and it's very helpful to me. It orients me and it does it. It advances your case if I better understand the arguments you're making right up front. So I and I would say that roughly half the time I get the motions that say for the reasons stated in our memo. So I just think it's an opportunity lost for practitioners. And the close corollary, of course, is the first paragraph of your opposition
5: should similarly summarize the key things you want the judge to be focused on. If I get a document that's labeled opposition to motion for summary judgment and it starts out saying you should deny the motion for summary judgment because there are material facts in dispute and because the moving party has not shown they're entitled to judgment as a matter of law then like judge davis i sigh because i sort of figured out that much from the fact that there was an opposition (laughs) tell me a summary of why your side should win this this battle and not the other side get me oriented all right, great. Is there
2: any other uh, do's and don'ts that you would like to give practitioners um, advice? Just Maybe general that's-
1: general pet peeves, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll start out. Um, um, One thing I really don't like is, you know, we file all these briefs. We have a lengthy argument, and often the the hearings are very lengthy. I don't put a whole lot of time limits on the lawyers. Um, And then afterwards, I start getting letters. Um, Sometimes I bring this on myself. They cite a case. I say, hey, if you want to send in a a, a copy of the case or the citation, fine. And then I get this letter that not only sends a citation, but it has a whole legal argument. And then of course, that invites a response from the other side. And now I'm off to the races uh, with a series of kind of mini briefs. Um, So um, I know letters, um, arguments and letters are more permitted, I think in New York and some other jurisdictions, it's really generally frowned upon here, I do. Um, Also, um, not fond of emergency motions. Um, um, There's almost never an emergency. uh, sometimes these happen, um, it's not at the beginning of the case, it's essentially another way of trying to get before the judge uh, certain arguments. Uh, so um, those are my kind of two um, don'ts uh, on my list.
5: Yeah, and I guess sort of related to the point, I think all the BLS judges agree with Judge Sanders enough with the post-argument letters, that's an unauthorized sur-reply brief, it violates Rule 9A, just don't do it. Um, but I think there's also, um, not always, but but there's still too much misuse of reply memoranda. Take seriously what Rule 9a says. A reply memorandum is there only um, to respond to things that you could not reasonably have anticipated um, in your initial memo. It is not the place for the first time to say, oh, here's a whole new argument that I never even thought of before. That's not fair to the other side. They don't have a chance to respond, and it's not therefore fair to the judge. So reply memoranda are not helpful if they're raising new points. They're also not helpful. Um, It's not good advocacy um, to just send a reply memo that says, no, really, what these three points that I made in my initial memorandum and took 12 pages making those three points, they're really important. So I want to repeat them in the reply memorandum. That's not what a reply memo is for.
2: Judge Sanders, in, respo- um, in, in response to your thing about letters and that you don't really like letters to be sent, how about if there's like a new case out there that would be helpful for you just to point out that the case exists? Is that something that you would yeah, help
1: more discourage? There have been times where there's been a case that was decided after the argument that um, is right on point, but you just give me the citation or uh, you, do, you don't give me the argument about why it it supports um, the party's position because, again, it just invites the response, and often the response is not only replied to how they interpreted that case, but it also lists a bunch of other cases that I should look at, (laughs) Um, so again, just the citation, uh, just the document, if we talked about it at the hearing, um, and I asked for it, um, um, but no arguments.
2: Any other judges want to come up with uh, or speak up about maybe cross motions for summary judgments or um, any other thing about lengthy submissions that you would like to talk about?
4: No. <laughs> okay.
2: Well, then we have concluded this. Is there any questions from any attendees? We
0: we do have a few questions on on other topics that were touched upon um, earlier that we weren't able to get to. So maybe we can. Do yeah, those. Happy
4: to address those. Yeah.
0: All right. Go ahead, Jessica. I, wanted, I was going to say the one, there was a recent one about um, a little confusion over one of the comments about the court reopening and what does that actually mean in July? Is it going to be physically open for some in-person hearings or is it just going to be physically open for personnel with everything still being remote?
1: So I'll, I'll take that on. I mean, first of all, I think the SJC we're, again, we wait for the governor, the SJC issues in order, the Superior Court issues in order. So um, I think we're looking to the SJC for that. Um, but we have started thinking about what it's gonna look like if and when we're authorized to open the courts to the public. Um, I can't tell you exactly if, whether it'll happen in July or later um, or, or under which, um, but I do know, because it's been circulated, it's gonna be with all these limitations. Uh, So these are decisions that are out of my hands. That's why I say to the bar generally, the safest assumption is just figure that you're gonna be doing everything remotely uh, for the next few months. Um, And um, you know, we'll keep you posted basically.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, and we had um, another one that was asking, I think this this was much earlier in the presentation about whether the clerks have access to masscourts.org to at least view the dockets, even if they're unable to update them remotely.
4: May I can field that one, which is um, uh, there are two ways that the clerks can access mass courts when remotely. One is through Citrix uh, and the other is through uh, the VPN, which is the virtual private network that the court recently opened. Uh, Clerks, there are a very limited number of Citrix licenses. Every clerk does not have one. So the vast majority of clerks do not have the mean, do not have a license to use Citrix. It costs money for the licenses. The court made the determination not to supply one to each assistant clerk. The VPN, uh, it, that can be supplied to clerks, but they need the appropriate hardware. It requires a 64-bit computer. Most assistant clerks don't have 64-bit computers. The court is, my understanding is the court has made uh, and a, placed a large order for laptops for assistant clerks. Uh, we're waiting for those to come in. When those come in, those will be d- distributed to the assistant clerks. That means that they'll be able to access the VPN, which means they'll be able to access mass courts and do docketing remotely. Uh, so that's that's a something that's in the works. I don't have a timetable as to when those uh, machines are expected to arrive, but that's the, the chosen course for giving clerks remote access to mass courts. And Brian, I, I think the question may
5: have been asking whether there's a third option, whether um, clerks can at least view dockets the same way lawyers do through the, masscourts.org website.
4: Well, they can certainly do whatever the public can do uh, because they can access the website, but they can't do anything more than the public can do right now remotely.
0: We also had a a question clarifying um, Judge Salinger's comment about tabbed exhibits as an option if it's not consecutively paged for the summary judgment motion um, appendix. and is there any preference on whether they are tabbed or untabbed? Sounds like they're untabbed, but will will it impact the scanning and availability to have those electronically available?
5: The current Rule 9A is still oriented to a paper world, and what it says now is that the joint appendix either needs to have everything with consecutive page numbers, so you can tell the judge, just look at Page twelve, or in some of our cases, page thirteen hundred ninety-seven. Um, <laughs> or if you're not going to be able to consecutively, consecutively page number, you have to have um, tabbed exhibits. If there are tabs, um, that doesn't make the scanning impossible um, right now. Given that we don't have electronic filing, but to the extent things get um, scanned, they're they're put on a scanner. But you know, typically the exhibits are not scanned at this point. Anyway, typically it's the motions, the memoranda, the judge's decisions, um, but but huge voluminous things for the most part in most counties, including in Suffolk, aren't getting scanned. So um, it's a good question, but but um, let's let's try to do it the way the rule says at least for now.
0: And and on that note, if to the extent someone is going to give a flash drive or access to a share file where you can download electronic copies of the filing, would you prefer? to have all the exhibits broken down into a separate document so you can easily yes. get them yes. in order? Absolutely. Yes.
4: All in favor, say aye. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, when they come as one thing single thing. document, even if there's a table of contents, as Judge Salinger asked for, uh, it's a much more difficult um, thing for us to manipulate.
3: Yeah. The, the obvious advantage of it is you can just... And you can just go right to the page that's cited, you can go right to the exhibit that's cited, it just saves time.
0: And then we have one final question in the in the queue here, um, and I don't I don't know if this if you know this or not, but it's asking if um, other superior courts beyond Suffolk are projecting out as far for jury trials. I know we have the specific physical limitations of the Suffolk Superior Building. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you happen to know whether others are on the same trajectory for jury trials?
4: Who wants to deliver the bad news?
5: I think it's fair to say that all counties have the same issues, and I think it's fair to say that um, although some smaller counties may be able to figure out how to start bringing in jurors sooner than Suffolk County, even there, there's going to be a long period of time where those jurors are going to be hearing criminal matters um, to catch up on backlog of people who are um, in custody or threatened with custody that just there are different constitutional concerns than even the most um, high stakes of, of the civil
4: matters that we see. Mm-hmm. Plus, I think Suffolk is particularly challenged but none of the courthouses were designed for a pandemic. So every, every jury box, is, it's difficult to social distance in a jury box. So those are like l- true challenges that we someone has to come up with a solution for before we can resume jury trials in any, you know, in, in a large scale.
0: Picturing the poor jurors sitting in the box with the sneeze shields, you know, yes. separating each person. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's all, that's all we have for questions about practice. And and I know some years we do more of the case notes, and this year we thought people would be more interested in hearing about. Some of the current issues with with practice before the BLS. Um, if anyone has, we did include a list in the materials that went out to everybody with each judge's a few select key cases from the last year that were of note. Um, if any of the judges has has one they want to share quickly or point out or highlight, we can do that. And
1: well, I will just say that the and not but any of my cases, but you know the cases we deal with in the BLS. Um, are really tough. <laughs> uh, the, the lawyers are really good. Uh, sometimes there are many times there are cases um, of first impression, um, and um, a lot of our cases as a result do go to the SJC. Um, but you know, sometimes we're going to get it wrong because we are dealing um, with in very difficult areas. Um, so um, there's, there's. I'm sure you'll see some decisions here. And you may not, um, uh, and I, I don't know that the SJC would necessarily agree with the outcome on some of some of them. Um, but uh, we kind of do the best we can to predict what the SJC would do if they were sitting in our place.
0: Okay. Yeah. Any any last call for a burning case you want to share? Otherwise, I see we're we're at five thirty. So. Yeah.
4: I'm not going to hold anyone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we encourage people to, take, to check out the cases in the uh, in the packet and all the copies of each case has been included there as well. So thank you, everyone. Thank you to all the judges today. Um, and thank you to the audience for tuning in. Thank you.
4: Yes. Thank, thank
0: you so, so much.
2: Thank nice
4: you, everyone, time. for doing this. All right. Take care.
0: Take care. Bye. Bye.